Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Chick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in on this uh, this very busy day uh, in the news. Of course, what is dominating the news is the uh, Russo-Ukrainian um, war. But uh, before we get to that, let me just say a few words about uh, this podcast. Again, if you're just joining us, um, we are we are still in the experimental phase with what this podcast is going to look like. Eventually, we'll have a proper back background. Right now, you're just you're just sitting in my house, and uh, we don't have any of that as yet um, set up. And we're kind of practicing with the medium. But we thought that the content, if we think it's you know if we think it's good, we would share it with you as we're uh, as we're still working on and in, uh, in shaping what this whole thing is going to. To look like, you know, that intro right there, I couldn't help but smile as I was listening to it. Um, you have a couple of voices that you might recognize. The one guy who says there, um, Hick from Bama, that is the voice of Christopher Hitchens from our 2010 um, debate, um, where I had, uh, had begun the debate by suggesting, you know, hey, I'm just a guy from Alabama. I'm not a, I'm not a guy with, uh, you know, this this uh, impressive English accent and the, the Oxford, you know, pedigree and Hitchens gets up and he says, don't buy it. You know, the, uh, the whole Hick from Bama, you know, narrative. So uh, anyway, that was one of the voices you heard there. The other one, the, uh, I thought he was dead, uh, was coach Gene Stallings. Uh, for those of you who perhaps don't live in the United States and who are listening to the show or, uh, or maybe you just don't follow football. Coach Gene Stallings is a legendary football coach in the, uh, the state of Alabama, the state of Texas. Uh, he was uh, won a national title at the University of Alabama. He's kind of a John Wayne figure. And Christopher and I, uh, my son Christopher and I, we went out there and spent a day with him on his ranch. And um, we asked him to um, record um, a couple of uh, you know little sound bites that we could use. And he had more fun with that. He was ad-libbing, saying all kinds of things that were just so funny. And we couldn't resist using it as part of the, uh, part of the intro uh, to this show. And in fact, um, I just did a podcast with a group called the Bama Standard. The Bama Standard is, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're an Alabama football um, podcast. And uh, they had seen that I'd spent the day with Coach Stallings and asked me if I would come on and share some uh, some of his football stories, which I did, and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was also fun just simply to be talking about something other than the heavy stuff that we have in the news. One might even say the crazy stuff that we have in the news, and that is my segue into one of the first things that I want to talk about here. Um, the war in Ukraine, I'm asked about this an awful lot because, of course, um, I wrote a book uh, called uh, The Grace Effect. Some of you will be familiar with it. Some of you will have read it. And that book is very hard um, to categorize. Uh, unfortunately, my publisher, you know, labeled it HarperCollins. They labored it, labeled it a, uh, an adoption book. But the book is a lot more than that. It's a, uh, it's a warning about 
socialism, uh, um, about you know what what socialism brings to a society, what it does to a society, and I was using our adopted Sasha, uh, adopted daughter Sasha, as a vehicle to tell that story, uh, rather than just simply using you know data and you know just facts and figures. I wanted people to understand the real life, flesh and blood consequences of a socialist worldview, what it does. And it is, by the way, a worldview. It isn't simply an economic system. It is, a, uh, uh, it is uh, as I say in the book, um, it is atheism masquerading as political philosophy. And it trickles down into every aspect um, of society. But, um, you know, I, uh, I've been in Ukraine many times. My family's been in Ukraine, uh, been in Russia many times and uh and i you know i have a master's degree phd work in uh in russian history and european history and so as a result people ask me an awful lot you know about this particular issue and i like to be fairly slow in responding to some of this stuff because at fixed point we aren't really news of the moment driven you know latest you know breaking news you know shooting in uh in homewood that's that's not what we do um we are addressing mostly ideas, uh, ideas that shape the culture. And an article that um, we might put out today uh, may very well be relevant in a year, in two years, in five years you know, from now, rather than one that's simply about something that's happening um, in the moment. So I haven't rushed to get my perspective on Ukraine out there because I've kind of wanted to pay attention um, to, um, you know, to, to see how it all was playing out um, before I made any, uh, any real commentary. But one of the things that, that has really struck me in the news has been the Putin is crazy, you know, narrative. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but, uh, you know, following Russia's invasion of um, Ukraine, I wondered how long it would take before pundits started saying what they say about all of America's enemies, and that is that they're simply crazy. And it didn't take long at all um, before we started hearing this. Um, you know, the uh, the press sec- uh, White House press secretary, um, she uh, she said that you know Putin might be suffering from you know some kind of uh, you know uh, COVID isolation. Uh, you know, he's you know he needs to get out more. You know, if he did, you know, perhaps he'd be a better adjusted human being. And uh, where most of us, you know, most people, you know, perhaps when they're not feeling themselves, you know, in the the pop culture, somebody, you know, smokes a cigarette or they, you know, they take a nap or they go on vacation or maybe they sit down with a glass of wine and classical music. Putin, you know, he, he invades another country, at least that according to the White House press secretary. The Daily Beast said that Putin is clinically insane. How they would know he's quote-unquote clinically insane, I don't know. Um, have they examined him? Uh, but anyway, that's, that's the narrative that they put out. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, uh, a Republican, he, uh, he, he bought into uh, to this as well, and he said that, um, you know, something is off. That's, that's exactly the way he put it. Something is off with Putin. Um, you know, the way he talked, he made it sound like him and uh, Putin, you know, they're bunkmates. You know, he knows him really, really well. You know, they're, they, they're roomies. They go way back together in 
my good friend Putin, something's off. South Carolina Senator, also a Republican, uh, Lindsey Graham, who sounded a bit unhinged himself, um, he implicitly accepted, you know, this diagnosis of Putin, and, uh, and he moved from the something is off stage of things to someone needs to bump Putin off. He, he went on Twitter, Lindsey Graham, and um, said, would somebody please assassinate um, uh, Vladimir Putin. Then the Washington Post ran a speculative, uh, a speculative piece on the Russian dictator's mental stability. So this narrative was all over the place. And in case you have any doubts uh, about it, um, media narratives are scripted to some extent. Uh, I don't know how many of you are paying attention, but you know, the January 6th happens. And January 7th, did you notice that everyone was using the word insurrection. They were all using that word. They weren't saying a disruption at the Capitol. There were riots at the Capitol. There was a demonstration at the Capitol. They all used a single word, insurrection. Almost makes you think there were talking points. You know, they were sent out to all the media outlets. And of course, there were. And so it is um, with Putin. Now, what I find interesting about this and, uh, and also troubling is that Western analysts have almost always been wrong, spectacularly wrong, when it comes to understanding the Russian mind, motivations, their political intentions. Uh, we've almost always been wrong on this. And I remember when I was, uh, you know, when I was very young, uh, many of you will remember this too, um, First came the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989. That event is, uh, is scarcely remembered today for some reason, probably because it, uh, it came about um, largely as a result of the policies of Ronald Reagan, and no one wants to give him any credit for that. But the fall of the Berlin Wall is, is maybe the singular most uh, important event um, of the historic event of my lifetime. And when that happened, um, a kind of euphoria swept across um, the Western world. You had, you know, Eddie Money, you know, singing that song, um, you and I lo know what love is worth. We're going to build a heaven on earth. You know, he talks about turning water into wine. And he talks about the name of the song is called Peace in Our Time. Peace in our time, echoing back to a phrase used disastrously by Neville Chamberlain, but first used by Benjamin Disraeli after the Congress of, of Berlin um, in I don't know, the 1870s, I think. And um, you also uh, had at that time the Scorpions, you know, singing a song called Wind of Change. You know, all this, in other words, it, it, the, the, the narrative of peace sweeping the Western world seep down from academia all the way down into um, the pop culture rather than the domino effect, you know, the, uh, the domino theory, the old theory that suggested that one nation after another was going to fall to communism. Some of you will remember, uh, you know, those old black and white, um, you know, documentaries that we were shown in school that would show communism bleeding into, uh, into other countries. Um, well, this was the reverse of the domino theory. We were being told then that, no, what we're seeing, rather than one country after another falling like dominoes to um, communism, they're standing up. 
um, to uh, one by one uh, to freedom and um, to capitalism. Um, you know, so th that was the narrative at the time. But they were, as I said, spectacularly wrong. Um, what we uh, began to see by the, uh, the mid-90s was a trend back in the other direction after a brief window of um, opportunity opened to the West and it seemed to be this trending towards freedom is uh, many in the East Bloc decided that freedom was a little overrated and it wasn't cracked up to be all that they had been sold. And it's important for us to understand that freedom as we understand it in the Western world is, is um, alien um, to the histories of Ukraine and Russia. And I know some of you are thinking, well, isn't Russia, uh, excuse me, Ukraine a democracy? Uh, yes, the Ukrainians would certainly say that they are, but not a democracy in a way that we in the West would understand it. They are a deeply, deeply um, corrupt political culture, just like Russia, um, both of them. Um, and of course, their histories are intertwined. But now that things are no longer moving, you know, towards the, uh, the freedom and prosperity that was predicted um, by just about every think tank and policy analyst way back in the 90s and how um, uh, democracy was, uh, was triumphing, uh, now that none of them seem to have anticipated Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, the narrative is, well, that just is an indicator that Putin is crazy that he's crazy. Now, I want to point out to you, just at a basic level of Russian history, one of the first things that you learn in Russian history, even if all you have is a superficial understanding of Russian and Ukrainian um, history, is that Russia has always viewed Ukraine as um, essential to Russia's uh, security and survival. Now, I keep hearing and seeing on social media, you know, the narrative of people saying, well, listen, if it's all about buffer states, which Ukraine is a buffer state, then why didn't Putin invade you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, countries that also join NATO? Well, because those countries are to, um, to Russia. It's not to say, by the way, that he won't um, eventually invade them. But those countries are to Ukraine, um, say, what, uh, what Cuba uh, or Jamaica are to the United States. Ukraine is Canada. Um, words and phrases like breadbasket and warm water port appear, you know, throughout any readings of Russian and Ukrainian history. Uh, Russia has always regarded Ukraine as vital to its survival. And, um, and yet, and yet, all the money at the Cato and Brookings Institutes, at the State Department and in the Biden White Houses, did not see any of this coming. <laughs> that to me is startling. I mean, all one has to do is look at Russian history. Peter the Great did this. Catherine the Great did this. Various czars did this. Stalin did this. And successive Soviet leaders, you know, who, who, who followed him. This has always been the policy towards Ukraine. And Putin warned us. He warned us about Ukraine. And, uh, and yet the Obama, actually it started further back than that, the George W. Bush, the Obama, and the Biden White Houses, not Trump, interestingly enough, 
they decided that meddling in Ukraine made sense. They decided that um, using Ukraine to provoke the Russian bear was wise. And it made no sense at all. None. And uh, 30 years ago, we convinced the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear arsenal um, and in exchange for our guarantees of defense. We've seen how that's worked out for them. We're a world away, and the Ukrainians are, uh, share a border with Russia. So this is highly, uh, highly problematic and complicated. But again, I come back to this idea of Putin as crazy. Is Putin crazy? You know, I've never met the man. Um, I've never read any, any reports of um, examinations of his mental health. But I'm inclined to say that the man is not crazy. And, uh, and that is because I believe that the Putin is crazy narrative is intellectually lazy. It is the narrative that you hear about all of America's enemies. Uh, before Putin, we heard this about Osama bin Laden. We heard this about Saddam Hussein. We heard this about the Ayatollah in Iran. Um, and it's very important. It's certainly we as Christians, I as a Christian, believe very strongly that um, we're spiritual beings and that it is possible to commit heinous acts and to be perfectly rational. Let me repeat that. It is possible to commit heinous acts and to be perfectly rational. This is Hannah Arndt's thesis. If you're familiar with the book, uh, her 1961-62 book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. If you've not read that book, it's a little book and it's an interesting book. It's really a collection of her articles written for the New Yorker, I believe, when she was sent over in 1961 to cover the um, trial in Jerusalem of Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. And all the judges, um, she says, declared you know, Eichmann insane. And she said, uh, in denying the reality, because the reality was too disturbing. She said multiple um, psychiatrists, psychologists examined um, uh, Eichmann and came to the conclusion that he was not crazy. Furthermore, he had not been warped by Nazi ideology as a youth. He joined the Nazi party at 33. He'd never read Mein Kampf. Um, Hannah Arndt ultimately concludes that Adolf Eichmann was simply an ambitious bureaucrat. He wasn't particularly anti-Semitic. He had never killed anyone personally in his whole life. He was just simply a guy looking to move up um, the Nazi ladder, and he did so by making the trains run on time to such places as Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Mittelbaud Dora, and uh, Mauthausen. This is, this is what he did. This is part of the final solution. Now, why is that disturbing? She says that all the judges wanted to deny this truth because the implications for humanity, for each of us personally, are far too disturbing. And they resonate in, uh, you know, in the words of uh, the prophet Jeremiah, who said in the 17th chapter of um, the book by his name, 17th chapter, 9th verse, um, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? That is, which of us can fathom the depths of our own wickedness? Most of us want to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm, I'm not as good as some, but I'm, I'm better than most. 
biblically speaking, theologically speaking, you're, you're not a good guy. None of us are. Uh, in fact, um, we're told in Romans chapter 3 that um, together they have turned aside, all of us. We have all turned aside um, uh, from, from God's path. We've, we've turned to wickedness. Now, some of you are listening to this and you weren't expecting, you know, to go from Russia um, to a theological discourse. But the two relate because I come back to this idea that I keep seeing everywhere that Putin is nuts. Now, I've said that it's lazy, and it is because that narrative avoids the hard work of trying to understand our enemies and looking for the connective tissue uh, in their actions. I, for instance, when I was teaching at university or teaching in a preparatory school, if I'd asked students, you know, what were the motives, what were the Nazis' motives behind the final solution? What exactly were they doing? Well, if somebody had just written, well, they were crazy. Okay, all right. But then what? There was a kind of logic that they were working out, which, which has its roots in Darwinian thought. This idea that there are uh, that there is no God, there's no ultimate judgment in the next life for the things that you um, that you do in this one. That we're ultimately animals, we have no soul, and that there are higher um, species than others. These were all things that informed a a logic, albeit a warped logic, that they were following, that they believed. So when we come back to this idea of Vladimir Putin as, uh, you know, as, as nuts, um, it's lazy because we're not really looking at what is motivating him. And yet, as I've indicated, just a simple look at Ukrainian history, excuse me, at Russian history, would tell you that Russia has always regarded Ukraine as vital to their security. And for the United States um, to poke the bear and to, um, for the Biden administration um, to be leading us, it feels headlong into potential nuclear war. By, by calling Biden crazy, it's an excuse for poor policy. It's an excuse for, um, for your failed predictions. And it also is an excuse to not do the hard work of foreign relations, of negotiation, of diplomacy. It's dangerous because it allows you to skip the diplomacy uh, um, phase and go straight to war. Well, we can't reason with him. We, there's no logic in anything he's doing, so we'll just send planes. We'll just send our troops. I don't know about you, but this isn't a war that I'm willing to see my own children die in. Uh, this isn't, uh, uh, and I say that, by the way, is someone who knows many people in Ukraine and for whom I pray and feel great concern. They're the real victims in the story. The Ukrainian people are the real victims in this story, but not their government. Not their government, which is they have a corrupt political culture, just like Russia. And another thing that I'm seeing in the, uh, the news that has really got me fired up, I don't know how many of you are noticing this, but it's appearing on social media now. Um, Ukraine has a very effective propaganda machine all over social media, and it's being assisted, of course, 
by, um, by Western media. And one of the ones that they're putting out right now is this idea that, Parton, uh, that Putin, um, not Dolly Parton, no relation to Vladimir Putin, um, that, uh, that Vladimir Putin is targeting Ukrainian orphanages. That is to say, with missile strikes and you know bombings, this this kind of thing. Now, while I find that hard fetched, not because um, Putin you know cares about Ukrainian orphanages or even his, his own orphans, because he certainly does not, but because it's of no strategic value. Uh, in in fact, it uh, it that sort of narrative does nothing but harm um, to his cause. So I I don't buy the idea that 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 Putin is targeting orphanages. But that narrative is all over social media right now that this is what Putin is doing. And so you see these videos, um, photographs, and stories of Ukrainian orphans, you know, who are, are being assisted and saved by the Ukrainian people. Now, why do I find this outrageous? Well, as many of you will know, our adopted daughter, Sasha, who, by the way, is now happily married, um, our adopted daughter Sasha came from Ukraine. She's she's Ukrainian in terms of her origin. She's American now, but she's Ukrainian in terms of uh, of of her or- origin. And um, Sasha, uh, as we would discover, um, all the time that we spent in uh, in Ukrainian orphanages, you learn very quickly. And if you don't, Sasha would tell you that they don't care. Ukrainians do not care um, for their orphans. They don't. And I'm speaking generally. There are uh, the, uh, the only exceptions we saw to this were a few uh, women acting alone. They didn't act as part as mi- of ministries, as part of nonprofits, as part of government organizations. There are just a few women, Ukrainian women, that we would encounter from time to time uh, who themselves had very few means. Um, often they were divorced or widowed, and, um, and they would, of their own time and money, go into the orphanages to try to mitigate the horror that was taking place in those orphanages. But the story that's being put out of um, Ukrainians, their deep love and concern for their uh, uh, orphans is outrageous, and it infuriates me. It infuriates me because, um, because they don't care. Um, you spend any time in Ukrainian orphanages, and what you discover is that the kids are, um, um, are neglected, abused, given almost no education whatsoever. Um, Sasha's teeth, when um, she had to have teeth pulled, they didn't even give her anesthetic. Imagine that. Imagine someone taking a drill to your teeth. It's like that old movie, you know, Marathon Man with, with Dustin Hoffman. This is the kind of thing that they did. The children were fed rotten food. Uh, we were told, you know, when we would take Sasha from the, uh, the orphanage, we'd have to return her. Um, but we, you know, Lori went and bought her some nice clothes because the clothes that she had, she wore every day. The same clothes every day. They were terrible clothes, ill-fitting clothes. They smelled. And so Lori went and bought her some new clothes. And uh, our adoption facilitator said, don't let her wear those clothes back into the orphanage because the directors will steal them and sell them or give them to their own children. Children weren't even given toilet paper. So don't tell me how the Ukrainians love their orphans because they don't. The Ukrainian government 
could not give a rat's ass um, for their orphans. Forgive me for saying so, but I would like to use much, much stronger language in speaking of their treatment of their children. And that is also true of Russian orphanages. Uh, they share a, a common philosophy. The orphanages are running off of the accumulated fumes of a socialist, that is to say, a communist mindset and worldview, where there's no soul and where we're strictly material beings. And in the Christian worldview, as I said earlier, we're spiritual beings and material beings. I'm reminded of something that Thomas Aquinas you know, said. He said that um, animals are all flesh, no spirit. Angels are all spirit, no flesh. But God made man a composite of both. He's spiritual and he's flesh, spirit and flesh. And he said, and as a result, we can ascend to the higher, that is, um, to, the, to the godly, or we can descend to the lower, that is, to the animal. And when you deny the existence of the spirit, you necessarily descend to the animal. And that's the way the orphanages are run. That's what they look like. Um, what broke our hearts in adopting Sasha was all the children we left behind. I'll never forget their arms reaching through the bars, waving at Sasha. Um, Dasvidanya, Sasha, as we were leaving. Those children are pushed out on the streets at age 16, where a majority of the girls end up in prostitution. Um, roughly 30% of those with disabilities are dead by the age of, what, what was it, 20, I think. Many of the boys end up uh, involved in um, uh, organized crime. Um, most of them end up uh, with strung out on some kind of um, substance. I mean, this is, this is what Ukraine is. This is what Ukraine looks like. They have no care for the least of these. And so while I feel a, a great sympathy for the Ukrainian people, for the Ukrainian government, I feel none. Here's, a, here's a, a, another little indicator of just how corrupt the government is. I had to bribe every single Ukrainian government official but one in order to adopt Sasha. And the government, the government gives to the children in the orphanage, you know, each year it's not much. It's like, you know, $100 or something like that for each year of their life so that when they, when they quote-unquote graduate from the orphanages or pushed out onto the street at age 16, they're given the money from their bank account, which is, let's say at this point, you know, $1,600. Um, it really isn't for the kids, so the government could say we don't do nothing for them. I mean, imagine that $1,600 is all you have, and you're pushed out onto the street, and of course they don't have any idea how to use it. So these children, you know, go spend a, a few nights in a hotel or they go to McDonald's and they eat repeatedly. And then what do you know? Their money is gone. And that's how they end up in the lap of, um, of mafia types or of pimps. Um, well, when we were leaving, um, the orphanage uh, directors informed us that Sasha had money in the bank. Uh, that's hers. But they said, we want it. We want that money. And there was a part of me that wanted to fight with them about that and say, no, it's Sasha's money. And I thought, Sasha, as yet, we are not out of the country. We'll let them have it. So we, we let them follow us to the bank. 
Um, and we withdrew the money from the bank and we turned around and gave it um, to the corrupt orphanage directors. For what purpose? They claimed that it was for the children, but I don't buy that for a second. And I just thought, you know, Sasha, you're going to be fine and we're going to get you out of the country. It's in a battle we want to fight until we are until the wheels touch down in Atlanta. And then I did by writing the book, um, The Grace Effect, and in, uh, in, in telling the story of these children. Coming back to the, to the situation in Ukraine, um, I think that we need to be very careful as we're following not just the narratives on social media that we're seeing you know, bandied about, where it's so easy to manipulate footage, uh, especially these days. You know, a guy can do it you know, on his laptop you know, sitting at a coffee shop. Um, but also the narratives that are coming out of um, you know, major news sources. I don't care if it's Fox News um, or um, CNN. You need to be very careful of what you're seeing from those news sources. In fact, it was CNN that was pushing this narrative about the um, Ukrainian orphanages in a very big way. And it could very well be, I will say this, in um, defense of CNN, it could very well be that the people at CNN simply don't know any better. Not everybody has been in Ukraine, and certainly those who have, I, very, very few of them have been in Ukrainian orphanages. So, you know, if I'm a producer at CNN and somebody comes and tells me this horrible story of what is happening to those, these children, I, I probably want to get that story out there. Um, the real story is how these children are being used, cynically used for propaganda purposes by the Ukrainian government. That's the real story. And um, it's, it's not one that is currently being told, but we're going to do, we're going to do what we can in order to, um, to push back at this in order to um to get that out of there ukraine is a is a and uh, excuse me the the war in ukraine is also something that we must be very careful in assuming too much we tend to look at all of this through the um through the lens of um of a western worldview how can we do any other it's what we know and so when we hear words like democracy, we make assumptions about Ukraine that aren't accurate or helpful. Um, we hear stories like this about Ukrainian orphans. We, we again, we, uh, we look at that from a Western perspective, and it's, it's the way we interpret these events. I will say to you that your Western way of thinking is not going to be helpful to you and interpreting what is going on in Ukraine. I said to you um, earlier on that the State Department, policy analysts, think tank types, White House advisors have very seldom rightly predicted what the Russians would do. And this is because we, we often make the assumption at, at bottom of US foreign policy is often the erroneous assumption that we are dealing with people who want the same things that we do. That they want a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage, a Nintendo for the kids. They want the salad shooter. They want, they want peace and freedom. This is what they want. Well, that kind of thinking got us nowhere with Uncle Joe Stalin. It got us nowhere with um, Ho Chi Minh. 
It's getting no, us nowhere now um, with Xi, and it's getting us nowhere with Putin. You would think at some point someone would begin to say, you know, maybe they don't want <laughs> the same things that we want. And so again, when they, we, they act in a way that we think is inconsistent with what we believe is their best interests, uh, we assume that they're crazy. This was a narrative that was put out um, about the 9-11 bombers. You'll remember this. And every, by the way, Muslim terrorist since then, this is what we hear. The guys who flew those planes into the sides of buildings, they're crazy. That is, uh, is, is what's going on. And yet, um, I don't think they were crazy. Osama bin Laden understood very well what America was, and he hated it and wanted to destroy it anyway. The, 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 the story we were told is all these people came from, you know, a, a poor, displaced backgrounds. Well, it turned out they weren't. Um, they were educated. They had money. Um, and furthermore, there was nothing to suggest they were crazy. Rather, the problem was we were trying to understand what they did using a... Um, um, a secular key, trying to, when you look at what, what the 9-11 bombers did from a secular perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. And the crazy narrative seems to be the right one. Because from a secular point of view, where this life is all you get, uh, and there's really nothing worth giving your life for, somebody flies their plane into the side of, of a building um, with a plane load of passengers and uh, in an act of um, of uh, suicide seems completely unhinged. However, when you use a different key, one, one that interprets their actions from the perspective of radical Islam, from the perspective of the Quran, the Hadith, um, the life of Muhammad, uh, when you view it from the perspective of people who might be um, seeking eternal life, Allah's favor, and 70 versions in, uh, in bliss, the tumblers all line up. And suddenly, the 9-11 actions, um, the, the actions on that day, they are totally rational from that perspective. Well, so it is with Putin. When you're trying to understand Putin's you know, actions from a, a purely Western secular perspective, uh, it gets you nowhere. Uh, if, however, you look at Putin's actions historically, as I pointed out earlier, Peter the Great did this, Catherine II did this, Stalin did this, uh, you begin to understand um, his actions make a great deal more sense. Uh, when you understand how vital Ukraine is to the Russians, how they have always viewed it as utterly essential to their existence, the actions make sense. Putin, Putin suddenly seems not crazy at all, but somebody who is acting in Russia's, not the world's, not NATO's, not the EU's, and certainly not America's best interests, but in Russia's best interests. And I'm, I'm not so sure he isn't acting in Russia's best interests. By that, do not interpret me as saying that I endorse what he's done. Uh, Putin's a killer. Uh, that's not my point. My point is that from a Machiavellian um, point of view, is are Putin's actions rational? Yes. Um, are they in the best interests of Russia? Probably, because it, it it has been obvious 
that the West, the United States, the policies, particularly of the Obama and Biden administrations, has been to encircle Russia. We're going to gradually make buffer states of, excuse me, we're going to gradually make um, NATO members of all of those buffer states. We did it with Estonia. We did it with Latvia. We did it with Lithuania. Ukraine is next. And Putin said, hold on right there. That isn't going to happen. And either you're going to back off and Ukraine is going to give me guarantees that they are not going to join NATO or I'm sending the tanks in. And guess what? He didn't get those guarantees and the tanks rolled. First, by uh, amputating Crimea from, uh, uh, from Ukraine uh, and the Donbass region and then Ukraine itself. So I believe, as we're you know, reading the tea leaves here, I believe that this is silly U.S. foreign policy and the, um, the policies of the Ukrainian government themselves that have brought us to this point. And so I would strongly uh, encourage you to, um, to, to be careful of the emotional appeals that we're seeing related to all this. And by the way, there's a terrific article by Lee Smith on Tablet. Um, on tabletmag.com, tabletmag.com by Lee Smith. And the article is called Ukraine's Deadly Gamble. Again, that's tabletmag.com, Ukraine's Deadly Gamble by Lee Smith. This is a superb piece. Lee Smith, in my opinion, is dead on in his analysis of what's going on here. And uh, it's his take, along with mine, that we are being manipulated by the Biden administration um, to uh, go to war, at the very least to saber rattle, um, against the Russians, in large part to cover for the mistakes of the Obama and Biden administrations and to cover for their deep corruption in that country. Lee, read Lee Smith's article, tabletmag.com. Ukraine's deadly gamble. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be back in just a minute. Steady money. Surrounded by fire and magic, we long to be free. It's heating, heating up down on the streets. It's a shame. A song called Peace in Our Time. To be strong enough to fight with our love like a phoenix from the flame. Popular after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Carefully. We'll let that song run for you just uh just a little bit longer than we normally would with bumper music because that's a song that I referenced earlier in the show. It's Eddie Money's song called Peace in Our Time. 
And uh, it sort of reflects not only uh, the period, um, which it most definitely does. You know, it, the song, I think, was written in 88. Um, and it, it really didn't achieve popularity until 89-90 um, when Eddie Money, you know, sang it. And uh, the, the song came out, you know, when you have Baltic states beginning in 1988 that are breaking away from the old Soviet Union. And, um, you know, there was a great deal of optimism. And then when the, the collapse of the, the, the Berlin Wall came and then in, uh, in 89, November of 89, and then in the summer of 91, as I was boarding a plane to, to fly to London to continue uh, my studies of history there, um, the Soviet Union collapsed. And so songs like this um, were extremely, you know, popular. I also referenced um, the Scorpions, the headbanger rock band of Rock You Like a Hurricane fame. Uh, West German um, rock band, um, you know, had the song called Wind of Change. The wind of change blows straight into the face of time. Like the storm wind that will ring the freedom bell for peace of mind. These are very hopeful um, songs. Uh, I don't condemn them in that uh, they reflected a, a mood, a feeling um, of euphoria that was not wholly unjustified insofar as, I mean, listen, if, you're, if your aunt and uncle, your parents, one of your children were caught on the other side of the, uh, of the barbed wire when the Berlin Wall went up, and that's the way it went up, went up so suddenly that if you were just, you know, um, in the, uh, the Russian zone, um, you know, to buy vodka, um, you were about all that you would go in the Russian zone for, see your family. Um, it's too bad. You're stuck. You are not allowed to come back. And so 45 years that wall stood, uh, well, excuse me, it didn't stand up. The wall went up in 61. So, uh, the wall was, was up for 28 years, but for, for 45 years, um, uh, people in East Germany were under um, Soviet oppression, under communism. And so when that wall came down, you can imagine um, the euphoria. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Um, others of you um, are not. But I let the song play because it doesn't just encapsulate that period of time. It also, and Eddie Money, by the way, did not write the song. He just sang it, which is so often the case you know, as singers. It's uh, someone else's talent who, uh, who writes it and their talents that popular, popularize it. Blue Suede Shoes was not Elvis. <laughs> that was, uh, that was not, uh, not him. Um, but anyway, um, it, this song also encapsulates, it's, it's, it's a picture of the secular mind, uh, the secular mindset. You know, that line there at the, the, at the end as is, uh, is Christopher was dialing it down. Um, for you and I know what love is worth, going to build a heaven on earth. Going to build a heaven on earth. Now, your worldview matters. And I said earlier in the show that I'm a Christian. Now, this isn't a Christian podcast. I don't, I don't think of it like that. This isn't a Christian show. Rather, it's a show and I'm a Christian. So that worldview, you need to understand, bleeds into, um, into the way I see things. Uh, and I think it's the right worldview. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm right about everything that I say. It doesn't mean that everything I say is Christian. Um, I wish that were true. I wish every action um, and word that proceeded from my mouth um, was Christian. That isn't the case. 
Um, you know, I'm not Nostradamus. Uh, Nostradamus, by the way, wasn't Nostradamus either. He just made so many predictions that eventually something had to be right. The, the, the Vikings will win the Super Bowl. The Jaguars will win the Super Bowl. The Packers will win the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, the Cowboys win. Eventually, you're going to be right. But, uh, but the Christian worldview um, has a proper understanding of human nature in a way that a secular worldview simply does not. And let, let me illustrate this, because we've been talking about Russia and Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, um, Ukrainian orphanages and uh, motivations here. That line, uh, for you and I know what love is worth, going to build a heaven on earth. A Christian knows we will never build a heaven on earth. And that's because a Christian worldview begins with a verse that I quoted earlier in the show, and that is Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Um, uh, how does it go? Pardon me. The, the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperate and desperately wicked, who can know it? Uh, who, can, uh, who can know uh, the depths of our own depravity? Now, some of you perhaps have plumbed the depths of your own depravity. Others of you, perhaps holding your lapels, um, are quite sure that you are very righteous. Let me reassure you that from a biblical point of view, you are not. From a Christian point of view, um, we have all, to quote Romans 3, we have all turned aside. Um, we have all turned aside. That is to say, we've turned aside from, from righteousness, from right. Um, we are born, says Scripture, speaking lies. In other words, evil is innate to us. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is where we get the doctrine of original sin. The term is never used um, in Scripture, um, but uh, Augustine was the, was the one to popularize the phrase. But the concept is there, um, that sin entered the world through one man. Now, what is interesting, and how in the world does that relate to this? Well, let me, let me explain to you why it does, uh, how it does. A secular worldview, you would think, at least with a superficial understanding of a Christian and a secular worldview, you would think the secular worldview is more compassionate because a secular worldview does not maintain, at least the more popular versions of a secular worldview, do not maintain that uh, the human beings are, are born wicked. Um, they, it does not take, take that point of view. Rather, it speaks in, in terms of, uh, of dispositions, um, genetics, of um, DNA, this kind of thing. And um, meaning that there are good people and there are bad people. And uh, good people are good um, because of their cultural influence, cultural influences nurture, in other words, and uh, bad people are bad because something is broken in them. Uh, in other words, maybe they have a, um, a you know, a, a bad uh, genetics, um, or because they had very bad influences. Now, as a Christian, no Christian um, would say that nurture does not matter. Of course it does. Having good parents, uh, godly parents, godly grandparents, godly influences is extremely important. Raise a child up in the direction he should go, and when he's old, he'll never depart from it. You know, so uh, um, the training of a child is uh, is extremely important. However, the Bible maintains that we are we are born with an evil bent. The secular worldview, um, as I've just explained, doesn't maintain that. Now, how does that play out? 
in um, real space time history. Well, let us consider, for example, George Bernard Shaw, only man, by the way, to ever win both a Nobel Prize for Literature and an Academy Award. I don't think he deserved either. He was a great writer, but he was an evil man. He was a communist um, to his black-hearted core. And uh, he's most famous um, to, um, to those of you listening, um, probably for Pygmalion, uh, otherwise known as My Fair Lady. And, uh, you know, I said that he was a communist. In 1931, Stalin invited him to, um, to Russia. And uh, he went and saw the Soviet system. And, of course, he was shown everything that they, they uh, wanted him to see. This is what a Potemkin village is, you know, a, a very false impression. But he wasn't an idiot. I mean, he did know that Stalin was killing a lot of people. And so when he came back to the West and he said um, that, that Soviet society was what a society would look like if Jesus came down to earth. Now, he didn't believe Jesus was the son of God, but, he, but this was kind of the secular version of Jesus, you know, that we get from time to time. And so he maintained that, uh, hey, this is what it would look like. I mean, it's, it's heaven on earth. It's, uh, it's, it's the Eddie Money song. We've created it. They've, they've created it. They've done it. Well, a few sensible people asked him, um, yeah, but what about the state-induced famine in Ukraine, you know, where they killed millions of people. What about collectivization? What about the purges? Um, what about all those millions of people Stalin is, 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 is dragging off into the gulag? Well, rather than denying it, George Bernard Shaw said, yeah, Stalin's killing people, but he's killing the right people. He's killing the right people. So you see, from a secular point of view, there are good people and there are bad people, and society is made better by exterminating the bad people. Um, that was what Hitler did. Hitler believed that there were lower orders of our species. He believed that there were evil people and that all you needed to do, by nature, they were evil people, and they needed to be rounded up, uh, a Slavs, Jews, you know, Christians were, um, were caught up in the dragnet as well, those who had adhered to God's word because they opposed his regime and saw it for what it was, evil. And Hitler, of course, was an atheist, so he wanted them dead. And uh, Hitler decided, we will create the utopian society, we will create the perfect society heaven on earth when we kill off all these people. Now, from a Christian point of view, we know that's wrong at multiple levels, the most obvious being, of course, you don't round up people and kill them. But there's another reason. Because we know, we know that human nature is itself broken. We have this interesting little story in our holy, uh, holy literature. It's the story of the flood. And God takes the most righteous man and uh, um, his family, and he puts them on a boat, and he exterminates the rest of humanity, and they start all over again, and it doesn't take a minute before society is off the rails again. In other words, the biblical story, the biblical worldview would maintain that we could take the best, the most moral representatives of our species, and we could, we could colonize the moon, and in a generation, things have gone wrong again. So we know better than this. So when we consider a story like this story, uh, um, you know, that's being put about, um, you know, 
um, what's going on in Ukraine. We're doing, dealing with two deeply corrupt political cultures. Um, and we also are dealing with a man in Vladimir Putin who, as we've noted, it's capable, to, it's, we are capable as a species of doing evil things and being rational people. I don't buy the narrative that Vladimir Putin is, uh, is crazy. I think he's acting um, in a perfectly rational manner, a manner that is consistent with Russian history, Russian leaders, and what he believes is, uh, is in the best interest of his own country. So uh, worldview matters. It makes a big difference in the way you and I um, see the world and in the way we interpret it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we will end this podcast, uh, this, uh, this show, on that note, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. The lights, the party's over. <laughs> they say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs>